you're joining us live stream tonight, if you just uh, joined us here, we're glad that you're joining us at home, and thank you for being with us. We're in Matthew chapter number 13, verse 31, and if you're at home, I miss seeing your face, but we're praying for you. I hope you know that, and we love you, church family that are there. And so Matthew chapter number 13, look at verse 31. We're going to be studying uh, the parables of Jesus tonight as we get into the third parable that we've studied. This is quite an interesting parable, and so tonight is more of a teaching message than a preaching message, but I think uh, we'll all walk away tonight with uh, learning some things, at least I have. And, uh, you know, I kind of gauge... When I learned something, I figured I figured it's probably a good thing to preach because I grew up in church. And so when I learned something, I think, man, I probably should have known that at some point. And so hopefully it'll help you tonight. And uh, maybe we'll learn something together. Look at Matthew chapter 13. Look at verse 31. Another parable he put forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown... It is the greatest among herbs and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Here we go again. We're on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is standing in the boat and he's using the natural amplification of the water to speak to the multitude there that is gathered to hear him. We see as Christ chooses this different teaching style than what they're used to hearing. They're used to going to the synagogue and hearing them read the law and those types of things. But Jesus is speaking in a different way. He's talking in parables unto them. Parables are, are being used and it, Jesus chose to use them. We talked about this a few weeks ago because they're relatable. The people could understand more of what he was saying because he was relating to them on their level. They were revealing because they had to look deeper into what Jesus was saying to get to the truth. And they were also repeatable as we are repeating them tonight, many thousands of years later. So far, we've studied two of these parables, the parable of the sower. The sower, representing Christ, went forth to sow. Some fell by the wayside, some fell on stony ground, some fell on the thorny ground, and some fell on good ground. This parable Jesus himself interprets. To the, these are the different reactions of men to the gospel. Christ, of course, is the chief sower, and we are to follow his examples, his example as sowers of the gospel in our generation. Then Christ gives the parable of the wheat and tares, which we finished up last week. This parable teaches that while there are different reactions a person can give to the gospel, when it comes down to it, there are really only two categories of men. There are the saved and the unsaved. Just like the wheat and tares, men can have similar, a similar appearance, but have very different fates. We know that God is the final judge of men. We are not their judge. The Bible says that we are not the judge of men. God is, and God will deal with all mankind someday. The Bible says the tares will be harvested to be burned. That's what the Bible says. And the wheat will be gathered into God's barns. That's the wheat and the tares. So tonight we're going to get into the study of this third parable recorded in this chapter, the parable of the mustard seed. And Christ gives us this parable. And like several other parables, Christ does not interpret the meaning of it. And so we must interpret it for ourselves. And while the parable is short, only two verses, it packs quite a theological punch. 
There's more to meet the eye here than we possibly see in just reading it quickly. And so I think that we'll be surprised tonight as we study it together. So let's pray and ask the Lord for his wisdom. Father, we pray tonight, Lord, and ask you, God, that you'd give us wisdom to see the meaning of this parable. And Lord, as we study your parables, help it to not only us to understand it, but Lord, apply its meaning to our lives. Help us as a church, Lord, to move forward with the gospel, the seed of the gospel in our generation. May we not live in a spirit of fear, but of a power and of love and of a sound mind. May we not leave this building tonight afraid, but Lord, Lord, excited and, and ready to give the gospel, Lord, in your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So as I mentioned, there's more that meets the eye in this parable. And I think tonight as we study it, uh, there's some interesting things here that, that I'd like to bring out. Christ does not explain this parable to his disciples. We're left to interpret it in our own. So we interpret this parable much like we interpret other scriptures, and that is scripture with scripture. That's how we interpret scriptures. And in the Old Testament, there's a verse that says something like, he lit off his camel, and that doesn't mean that we smoke, amen? <laughs> and so you, you don't just take a verse out of the Bible and say, well, this is what it means. No, you interpret parables, uh, you interpret scripture with scripture. That's how we interpret. The whole entire Bible is inspired. The Bible says all scripture was given by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We understand that holy men of God spake as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So as we read the Bible, we recognize that they are, it was written by men. Men used their hands to pen the words. But the Bible, we believe, is plenary inspired. That means it is God-breathed. God breathed into man what to write. That is why we can read the Bible and it is cohesive in structure even though it's 66 books written by over 40 different authors on three different continents in three different language over a 1,500-year time span, and it, it absolutely agrees with itself. Try writing something you wrote. Uh, 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 I read Sometimes I read sermons, I thought, what in the world was I talking about? Amen? And so we understand that God has inspired scriptures, and it's an amazing thing. And so we interpret scriptures with scriptures, but also we interpret scripture in the context of, that it's in. And so maybe you read a verse and you're like, man, what in the world is this verse talking about? And that's where a lot of people get hung up because they read a verse, they read a single verse or two or three verses, and they, they get hung up on the meaning of it. And the best thing to do in that situation is to go back and read the whole chapter in context and then try to understand that chapter in the book context who God is speaking to, what he's speaking about. And so tonight, we start with number one, if you're taking notes, we start with the context of the story. The context of the story. Something to keep in mind in the context of Matthew chapter number 13 is that we have now studied two parables, and this is the third parable, that are given in succession. And they're given in succession for a reason. The main truth of these three parables are connected one to another. Christ gives one parable, then another, and then another. And these three parables are all connected into the same meaning one to another. Much like we sing a song. Uh, I love that song, At Calvary. What a powerful, powerful song. Where's Brother Russell? Is he in here? Is he out maybe doing counting or something? Brother, There you are, Brother Russell. He arranged that. Good job arranging that. And what a beautiful song. But you sing At Calvary. Years I spend in vanity and pride, carry not. And then you sing the next one and the next one. But then you always come back to the what? The chorus. The verses are related to the chorus. Just like that. 
These three parables come back together. They're connected by a singular truth that Christ is trying to convey here. And so what, in what ways are these parables connected and how are they connected? So let's talk about that for a moment. We see letter A here. They're connected in the timing of the parable. The connect, there's, there's connection in the timing of these parables. All of these parables in Matthew 13 deal with the same specific time period that Christ is speaking about. This time period extends from our present age and from the church age that began, of course, when Christ was on the earth and his ministry. We understand we celebrate Christmas. Christ was born and the church age begins and the church age continues all the way through until we are raptured. We understand that there's going to be the tribulation time. And so we, we go, that's when the, that this whole time period, these three parables are talking about this time period. So these are connected by their timing. But letter B, they're also connected in their purpose, in their purpose. These three parables, Christ has a purpose in this parable, as in other parables, which we will see later in our study. Christ is not going to give his disciples the entire story. He's not going to give them the whole story. There are details that he keeps to himself. And and we can question that. Why does Christ choose to do that? But I'd like to remind you here that Christ is revealing the mystery of the gospel to the disciples for the first time. And can you imagine being a Jewish person listening to the entire mystery of the gospel for the first time? You wouldn't be able to handle it if Christ just dumped it all on them. This is all the things that are going to happen. There's other reasons why we know that Christ did not dump all of the information on them, but certainly that Christ is, is giving them the mystery of the gospel in bite-sized pieces. We should be reminded that Christ is revealing the truth of the mystery of the gospel for the first time, and for the first time, the kingdom of God and the end times are being revealed. And so Christ is revealing this to his disciples. Perhaps he's giving this information so that they can digest it and understand it over time. And Christ teaches them later on in scriptures. He teaches them more and more. Just like in our Christian life, we get saved. We don't understand everything right away. Amen? It takes time to grow. And some of you that have been here, you've been Christians for a very long time. And uh, you have a little bit of a more solid, deep foundation in your faith and maybe someone who's been saved for six months or a few months. And, and so the wonderful thing is, is that God gives us grace to grow. And by the way, so should we. And so we ought to give people that room because guess what? God gives us room to grow and we ought to give others room to grow. Amen. And so Jesus is giving these, this information in bite-sized pieces here. But as we look at the parables in succession and we study the meaning behind each of them, there are some similarities that emerge. I'm talking about the three that we're studying. Some similarities come out and the connection of the purpose of these three parables become clearer. In the previous two parables, we see the focus of the gospel being sown and the mixed results of the sowing. Remember the parable of the sower. We see four different types of reactions. We see that men, as they listen to the gospel or hear the gospel, react in a variety of different ways. We see them, the, vir- the variety of the ways, all the way from the wayside, all the way to the good soil. And we see there's the emphasis here, there's a positive reaction and a negative reaction to the gospel in that first parable. The purpose of this parable is to, re- is to illustrate that many will reject the truth of the gospel and some will receive it. And we see that around us today as we witness to people and we tell people about the Bible. Some people reject it 
and some people receive it. And so this parable is illustrating that some will accept the truth of the true gospel, but some will reject the true gospel. In the parable of the wheat and tares, once again, we see the purpose is illustrated. Some will receive the gospel, the truth of the gospel, and some will pretend to receive it. But ultimately, in pretending to receive the gospel, what do they do? They ultimately what? Reject it. So in the first two parables, we see this theme of acceptance and rejection. Both of these parables give insight to the positive results of the gospel and the negative results of the true of rejecting the true gospel. So Christ is reiterating over and over again the duplicity of man, the fact that there are both saved and unsaved, and sometimes it's very difficult to distinguish between the two. That's the wheat and the terror, the tares. Uh, and so it would make the most contextual sense, and stick with me here, it would make the most contextual sense that if this third parable, which follows in succession on the mustard seed, would be a continuation of that same theme, would it not? Did I lose some of you there? It would make the most contextual sense that this third parable would, would match with that same theme. And so we see that the theme here is the reception and the rejection of the gospel or the true gospel. So you might be thinking, I see the positives in the parable of the mustard seed, of the gospel being accepted, but I don't really receive the, see the rejection or the negative side of this parable. So to understand that, we need to dig a little bit deeper into what Christ was saying, the contextual things that he was saying about the mustard seed. And so let's break this down a little bit and let's understand a little bit about what Christ is talking about with the mustard seed. So number two here, let's talk about the character of the seed. So we see the context of the story. Let's talk about the character of the seed. Look at verse uh, uh, 31 here of Matthew chapter 13. If you're there, say amen. If you're at home, say amen. And nobody can hear you anyway, so say whatever you want. And so another parable he put forth, saying unto them, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed into his field. Christ chooses to illustrate the humble beginnings of the church as the mustard seed. Why is this? Why does he choose them? Have you ever seen a mustard seed? Very tiny, very small, somewhat insignificant. But Christ illustrates this as the humble beginnings of the church. Just Jesus really and his disciples. And what does the Bible say about these, these men and Jesus? They turned the world, what? Upside down. The humble beginnings of the church. And may I say, the gospel is so completely powerful. It is so completely powerful that God doesn't need a huge church to accomplish his task. He only needs a few people that are wholly sold out to him and who are willing to go the distance and who are willing to do what needs to be done. And so we see the humble beginnings of the church is this illustrated by this mustard seed. And this small mustard seed explodes in growth, just like the church exploded in growth. The day of Pentecost, 3,000 people accept Christ, and the church began to grow. We know that persecution came on the church, and they began to grow even more and spread even faster. And in the simple surface interpretation of parable, if that's the interpretation that you gather from it, that's all right. It's okay. It's not going to hurt you theologically if you stop there, because definitely the church has exploded in growth and millions have been saved and the gospel marches on. But as you look a little bit deeper in the parable, you're going to find something interesting. The previous parables had a recurring theme, both a what? Positive and a what? 
A negative. We see reception and we see what? Rejection. So in the context of this parable, where do we find the rejection? So as we look closer, we find some character characteristics of this mustard seed itself. First, the mustard plant is an herb, not a tree. It's an herb, not a tree. These seeds usually are about one to two millimeters in diameter. It produces a plant. It, is, it produces an herb that grows to two or three feet tall. And I think I have a picture there. Is there a picture of the mustard there? And so this is a picture of a mustard plant. Notice how the mustard plant grows. It actually grows more like a weed than a crop. The mustard plant grows and has a life uh, cycle of about 85 days. And then in its life cycle, it goes to seed, it scatters its seed, and then it dies, much like a weed, much like your weeds in your garden, amen, that, uh, and dandelions or whatever. The mustard seed also is an annual plant, and it dies every year. How many understand trees don't do that? Amen? It does not grow into something like a tree uh, that becomes established. Birds are naturally attracted to the taste of the mustard seed. The black mustard plant, this is the next picture here, is the tallest variety, and it can grow up to eight feet, and some birds do land in the plant. It is, however, not to make their lodging there, but to, to eat the seeds of the plant before they're ready to go to harvest, and they'll eat all of the seeds, and then they'll move on. So when you consider that the mustard plant is a plant and not necessarily a tree, why does Christ use the word tree? Well, if you look a little deeper, you'll find that the word tree here means dendron. It's a Greek word for dendron. The word is used to refer to a type of oak tree. Dendron describes a slow-growing tree with deep roots, distinguished with woody material. Interesting that Christ uses that word. Christ is describing not just a tall plant, but he's specifically talking about a wooded structure. How many of you have ever cut down or tried to cut down an oak tree? They are very difficult to cut down. And there's oak trees in my backyard. We have several big oak trees, and I got a chainsaw, and man, I'm trying to cut through those oak, and those things are hard, and they're heavy. This is the kind of structure that Christ is talking about. Someone might say that Jesus didn't know that. He, he didn't understand that. He wasn't a botanist, and may I say, uh, yes, he was. Christ doesn't make mistakes. Nothing in this Bible is a mistake. And, and the deeper that you go, the more you'll figure that out. I challenge you to. He did, however, he doesn't make mistakes, but he did, however, make the mustard plant. Amen. When we read and realize the nature of the church should be more like a weed and less like a tree. A weed grows quickly. It's hard to get rid of. It has shallow roots and it casts its seed. In my yard, we have crabgrass. Does anybody else have crabgrass? I hate crabgrass. Can't get rid of it. Why? Because it grows and it grows quickly and it spreads quickly and it's very difficult. This is, the type of, uh, this is the type of illustration Christ is using here. We are supposed to grow like the mustard plant. We're supposed to grow and cast our seed and we grow and cast our seed. And the church is supposed to grow like a weed. And by the way, may I say this church, Central Valley Baptist Church, that's why we do all the things that we do. We're, we're not trying to grow up into a, uh, create some kind of an edifice here to represent our personality. We're trying to grow. We're trying to cast the seed of the gospel. And so Christ is illustrating here that he is looking
looking for more of that mustard seed growth. And yes, the church grew like the mustard seed, humble and grew quickly and spread quickly. But then I believe what Jesus is teaching, and this is, uh, you could, you could, we could talk about this for a long time, but I believe that you could apply it this way, that Jesus is saying the tree, or so to speak, is an abnormal growth. So tonight we can see the positive or the reception of the gospel. The humble beginnings of the mustard seed grow quickly and spread quickly. And then we can see the negative or the rejection of the true gospel. How do we see that? Well, let's talk about letter A here. We see the positive of the seed. Christ does draw attention to the positive, the widespread reception of the gospel. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And it did indeed begin small and insignificant. But because, <clears throat> but because of the power of God... Many, many will be saved and have been saved, and, and, and quite positively, that is a positive thing. However, the church is supposed to grow more like a weed, like a mustard plant. And in this parable, Christ is saying it grew more like a tree, and I believe it's talking about abnormal growth. We see the positive. Now let's talk about the negative, letter B. We see that the positive is the quick growth of the gospel, but letter B here is we see the problem is the shoots. The shoots. How many of you have suckers on your trees? And you have that trees growing up and those shoots come off and, and you got to keep trimming them. you got to keep trimming them down. And so there are branches of the mustard seed that have grown into something that should not be. And this ultimately results in the rejection of the true gospel. Now, let me illustrate this for a moment. There are thousands and I don't know if thousands and thousands, but there are definitely thousands of offshoots of true Christianity. Are there not? Let me repeat that. There are thousands of offshoots of the true Christian church that is supposed to be. And that is not a good thing. Say, so, well, isn't it good that there's offshoots of? No, because it distorts or perverts the gospel. And how can somebody get saved according to the scripture if they don't know what the scriptures say? And so these thousands of offshoots have, have happened over the years and some spring up, die quickly. Some are still around today. I think about the myriad of unbiblical and uh, unbiblical shoots and the crazy creeds that are out there in the name of Christianity, from the snake handlers in Tennessee to the Mormons in Utah to our friendly neighborhood Jehovah Witnesses. I'm not trying to hurt anybody, but these groups are offshoots. If you, if you were to lump them together, the world would lump them in as Christendom or Christians. And let me say, if you don't believe that Christ is God, that is not a true Christian church. You have to believe in the deity of Christ. The Bible talks about that. So if you reject the deity of Christ, you're rejecting the truth of the gospel. Choose whatever you want to be, but don't say that you're a Christian if you don't believe in the deity of Christ. And all God's people said, amen. I don't mean to draw such a hard line in the sand, but really God's the one that drew that line in the sand. And so there are lots of offshoots of true Christianity all over the world today. And there's a lot of weird things out there. But when Christ started his ministry, it indeed was small, like a mustard seed. And it indeed exploded in growth. And by the way, all over the world today, there is the true Bible-believing Christian church. All over the world. From Manteca, California, to China, to India, to Brazil, to Chile, you can find Bible-believing Christians who believe in the Word of God. We're not the only ones. Amen? There's many, many millions of Christians getting saved. And in some parts of the world, people are getting saved like crazy because of persecution and things of that nature. And indeed, the mustard seed has grown and, and it continues to grow today. But much like the tares and the wheat, remember that parable, 
Much like the tares grow up alongside of the wheat, many times indistinguishable, many times they impersonate the true Christian, the true uh, Bible believer, many false churches have also exploded in growth alongside of a true gospel-preaching, gospel-Bible-believing church. It wasn't long after Christ ascended that the church began to grow these offshoots. Rather than scattering the seed of the pure gospel, they became, it became more interested in building large denominations, more interested in building institutions and conventions and associations and boards and all of these things that, and having huge buildings and all of these things. And so at some point in time, and I could probably narrow it down to about 300, 300 AD after the death of Christ, about 300, when really this began to take hold. And, and think about the history of some of Christendom. Think about the history. Think about the money the power, the wars, the persecution, all in the name of Christianity. How many understand that that wasn't Christ's purpose for the church? It was never God's purpose to do those things. And so these are the, the problem here is the offshoots. These are unnatural branches. And still today, there are great ecclesiastical religious systems that represent in the world's eyes Christianity, but do not appear in the New Testament blueprint for the church. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You say, Why, how, do you, how do you, or how do we as a church decide what we do and what we don't do? Right here, amen? Amen. amen. We, and then there's some things that we do, like, like have air conditioning that may not be in the Bible, amen? But, but if, if we do it in policy, if we, if we do it in, in, in belief, and we do our ordinances, all these things are, are straight from the Bible. And so we see these offshoots have grown up. And think about the, uh, the, the succession of these parables. And think about the negativity, the negativity and the positivity of the reception and rejection of the gospel. Ultimately, when there's an offshoot of true Christianity, and they pervert or distort the gospel, they change the doctrine of the Bible, what happens? There is a widespread rejection of the gospel. And that's why we, we sometimes talk to somebody and they'll say, I'm a Christian. And you'll say, well, how do you know you're a Christian? Well, I do good works. Jesus never said that. Well, I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. Jesus never said that. He never said that. That's not in the Bible. The Bible says that salvation is by grace through faith alone. That's what the Bible says. Well, well somebody say, well, uh, uh, I'm saved. You say, why are you saved? They might say, well, because I'm baptized. Jesus never said that. Jesus never said that. For whosoever shall get baptized shall be saved. No, he said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He who hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son hath not life. Baptism is a symbol or a representation of our decision. Uh, we read Acts chapter number 8 with, the, with the, the Ethiopian eunuch. And Philip joins with his chariot, and he talks to the Ethiopian eunuch and preaches unto him Jesus out of Isaiah. And they, be, they come to a point after the man recognizes who he's talking about. And he says, here is water. What doth hinder me? Or what's stopping me from getting baptized? What does Philip say? If thou believest with all thy heart, thou mayest. And they went both down. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ, I believe in Jesus Christ. The man was saved. Then he was baptized. And so there are a lot of offshoots that, that distort the word of God. And so... How many understand that if somebody is trusting in their baptism for salvation, there's an issue there? And maybe that's you tonight. I'm not trying to be cruel or uh, I'm I'm just trying to tell you the truth. Don't you want someone to tell you the truth? How many want to go to the doctor and get lied to? 
oh, I'm having this pain, and oh, you're fine. Don't worry about it. It's no, 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 you want to hear the truth. And so ultimately, these offshoots result in a widespread rejection. And how many understand tonight that around the world today, there's a widespread rejection of the true gospel in a myriad of different forms. And so as we look at the context of the story <clears throat> and we see the character of the seed, we find both a positive aspect of the mustard seed, yes, the simple version, yes, the humble beginnings of the church grew and, and, and it grew quickly, but we also see the problem with it. We see the problems with the offshoots, the negative of the rejection. So lastly tonight, one more important aspect of the Bible here that will help kind of wrap up this, 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 this thought here of the rejection of the gospel is a contradictory sentiment. That's number three there, a contradictory sentiment. We see a contradiction if we think, well, I don't really necessarily believe that. And listen, you can disagree with me on this. We could split hairs on this all day. I'm just trying to teach you what I learned here. But if you, if you, if you take that sort of side of it here, then you have to do something with verse 32, which I, which, which I had to do and study out. So we see here, verse 32, it says, which indeed is the least of all seeds, talking about the mustard seed, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs and becometh a tree. So that the what? Birds of the air come and lodge into the branches thereof. So we see a contradictory sentiment here. At first glance, we see and we read in the parable, it's sort of straightforward. The sower sows, the mustard grows. And these simple verses might suggest a sentiment of only a positive outcome. And yes, the church has grown, and that is positive. But also, there's a problem here, and it's these pesky birds. Who are these pesky birds? Amen. The birds throw a monkey wrench into the sentiment of a positive, uh, only positive, only parable. So put on your thinking caps for a second. I want to ask you a question. In the previous parables that we studied, do the birds represent something good or something bad? Something bad. Amen. Let's look at verse 3 and 4 of Matthew chapter 13. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went forth to sow, talking about the seed of the gospel. And when he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the what? The fowls came and devoured them up. It's a negative connotation that the seed of the gospel is being devoured up. It's being taken away. And these fowls that come to devour the word of God uh, represent really satanic foes or satanic forces against what God is trying to do. Most people refer to these simply as demons. And you say, well, I don't believe in demons. Let me tell you something. You try to win somebody to the Lord, you'll see demons come out of the woodwork. <laughs> One time I was talking to somebody about the gospel, and a dog bit me on the knee out of nowhere. Uh, uh, you'd be talking and all of a sudden poltergeist out of the television, man, I'm telling you. Weird stuff happens when you start giving the gospel, amen? Singing about at Calvary tonight, all of a sudden the sound system hasn't done anything all night, but as soon as the words at Calvary were spoken, the sound system started buzzing. I'm not saying those were demons, that was just Robert, but I'm just saying demons. I'm just kidding, Robert. Just kidding, buddy. I'm just saying tonight that, that demons are real, amen? And these birds, these birds are referred to in a demonic light, if anything, they're foes against what God is trying to do, and, and whether it's uh, on purpose or not. So, interestingly enough, in Revelations chapter number 18, why don't we go there real quick? In Revelations chapter 18, we find that demons are also referred to birds there. Interestingly enough, Revelations chapter 18, look at verse 1. Revelation 18, verse 1. Revelation is the last book of your Bible there. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven 
having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen. Talking about that great city, that great, uh, that great uh, uh, fall there at the end of the tribulation period. It says, fallen, it's fallen. And it's become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. And so we see that birds are, are illustrated in, in Scripture as a demonic force. This seed, because of its vigorous flavor, the seed... The mustard seed, because it has that spicy pop, that flavor. How many like mustard? Anybody like mustard? Who are my mustard people at? Amen. And if you're, I'm, I'm asking you to raise your hand at home. Nobody can see you, but raise your hand. And, uh, and you like that mustard flavor. Well, so do birds. And it's a favorite with birds. And it draws them to the plant for food. And may I say that the unnatural branches, stick with me here, the unnatural branches of an unbiblical church are a favorite hangout for demonic activity. Let me say it again. The unnatural branches of an unbiblical church are the favorite hangout of demonic activity. The Bible says that Satan disguises, even disguises himself as an angel of light. Uh, not too long ago, my wife and I were in her garden and we were pulling out weeds. And uh, so we're pulling out weeds out of her garden and she had this beautiful plant. I don't remember what the plant was. Uh, but it was, it was some kind of a, a plant with big leaves. It might have been a pumpkin or something like that. And uh, <clears throat> I'm pulling all these. We're trying to get all the little weeds out. You know, we're trying to pull all the little weeds. And then all of a sudden, I kind of look under the pumpkin and I, or whatever plant it was, and I see this huge weed growing under this plant. And I had to move everything out and pull that big weed out. And sometimes the, the demons are like that. They try to hide under these things, under the cover uh, of an unbiblical church, and they hide and they grow underneath there. And that's why it's important. I'm not saying that our church is the only church, because it's not. There are many wonderful biblical churches. I think of Brother Kilthow, not too far from here, and uh, maybe in Stockton. I think of other churches. And I'm not saying that every church is this way, but there are churches that are unbiblical. And it's a hangout, amen? Not a place you want to be. This is a contradiction. We see here that, that the Bible says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light and his demons love hanging out in plain sight, deceiving people with an almost truth. I said with an almost truth. If you talk to certain people who say that they're Christians, you listen to them carefully and they get down to the brass tacks of the gospel, you'll find that often it doesn't match up with the Bible. I'll give you an example. I was talking with a lady one time at the door. And uh, we were having a great conversation. She was an older lady and very sweet, very kind. And me and my, me and my, my we were just putting tracks on the doors. We were just going through and she happened to be outside a little, working on her plants or something there. And we were just talking about her grandkids and talking about everything under the sun. Just had a great conversation. And uh, I, I just felt like the Holy Spirit opened the door for me to talk to her. And I just simply asked her, I said, I said, do you go to church anywhere? And she says, yes, I do. And I said, great. And we talked a little bit about our church and and I always say we don't want to steal people from their churches because that's not what we're doing. We're not out trying to take people from their churches. We just want to make sure they know there's a church in Manteca that cares about them. And so I started talking to her. And then I said, do you, do you know for sure that heaven's your home? Because I've learned just because people go to church doesn't mean that they know they're saved. And so I said, do you know for sure that heaven's your home? And she said, well, not everybody's going to go to heaven. And I said, okay. And so we began talking. And, and by the end of the conversation, she flat out said, Jesus isn't God. Well, she knew a lot of Bible verses. Uh, she quoted them to me, several Bible verses, and she began trying to convert me to her 
And of course, you, you can figure out what, what religion she was or what belief she had. Well, may I say she had a lot of the same language that I did. She was very sweet, very kind. And these, most, most of the time, they are, the folks like that are. But at the end of the conversation, we found out that her interpretation of Scripture was a false interpretation. And so we must understand tonight that, that in, in the wheat and the tares, the same thing goes with these unnatural or abnormal branches, these offshoots. Here's one last thought tonight for you to take home and just chew on a little bit. But what happens in the parable of the sower? What happens at the end when the seed falls on the good ground? Let's go back to Matthew chapter 13 and look at it. Go to Matthew chapter number 13, look at verse 8. Again, these parables are in succession. They all tie back to the same truth. So what is Jesus trying to teach us? Look at verse 8 of, of Matthew chapter 13. It says, but other fell into what? Good ground and brought forth what? Fruit. The result of receiving Christ or receiving that seed is fruit, some a hundredfold, some 60-fold, and some 30-fold. What was the result of the mustard seed growing abnormally? Birds. Jesus mentions also, uh, we find here, she, he, he mentions fruit would be the result. Fruit is the result of the seed falling on good ground. In the parable of the wheat and tares, what do we find at the end of that parable? We find a harvest. The harvest is mentioned, the tares are weeded out, and the wheat is harvested. What happens to the mustard seed in the unnatural branches? We find, we find the birds eat them up. So there's no fruit or harvest mentioned in the third parable. And may I say that we live in a day with many so-called Christian churches that are not abiding in the vine, as Christ says. What does Christ say? He said, abide in me, and I in you, and you will bring forth what? much fruit. When we abide in Christ, in His love, in His grace, in His mercy, it's not about our works, it's not about a denomination, it's not about our baptism, it's not about all those things, but we abide simply in Christ. The Bible says we will bring forth much fruit. But the problem is, is there are a lot of these offshoots that have replaced the fruit of abiding in the vine with the fruit of entertainment, the fruit of crowds, the fruit of capitulation, all of these things that they've replaced abiding in the vine with something else, and they have fruit, but it's not the same fruit. It's a different kind of fruit. I think about some, and I'm not trying to criticize, please don't get me wrong, I'm trying to simply draw a comparison here to a biblical church versus an unbiblical church. But I think about churches that fill stadiums, 40, 50, 60,000 people. And there's, there's a lot of branches there. But I want to ask you a question. If a city has 60,000 Christians, where, why aren't people getting saved? And all God's people said, why aren't there more missionaries on the field? Why aren't we running more buses to the communities that need the gospel? What I'm trying to say is tonight, there is a fruit that we get from abiding in the vine. There are many that have a form of godliness but as Paul said, they deny the power thereof. So as we wrap up this parable, how many, like me, learned a few things tonight? Interesting. As we wrap up this parable, we see the reception of the gospel certainly is a positive. And the church did start out as a mustard seed. And may I say, praise the Lord. People are getting saved all over the place, all around this world. And may we continue to, to help the church move forward and see people get saved. But with this growth and 
With these things, we also see an abnormal growth, offshoots of an unbiblical abnormal growth. And I'm thankful tonight to be a part of a church that I believe is following the blueprint of the church that Christ laid out. I believe we have a church tonight that is found within the Word of God. And all God's people said, amen. I believe that. And I understand we could always do better. We're always trying to do better. But we don't want to ever become a church that mixes our doctrine with the philosophy of men. We don't want to do that. We want to get it straight from the Bible. So I'm thankful to be a part of a church like that. And aren't you glad to be a part of a church like that? And all God's people said, amen. I hope we learned something tonight. Let's pray together.